Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, let's buckle up for the turbulence here. Countdown to traffic chaos as if we haven't had enough of that already. The WestJet pilots set to go on strike tomorrow. Is this really going to happen? Now, the good news here is they're still talking, so maybe this is a lot of saber-rattling and bluffing going on. You can only hope that they get a last-minute deal. Is that even possible at this point? The CEO of the company says they're very far apart, especially on wages. Got Duncan D. standing by to discuss. Have a listen to some WestJet travelers here, a lot of them scrambling to make backup plans. Anything can happen, so yes, I'm being proactive just in case. I'm going to book with another airline. We might get stuck. And so uh, I decided to go ahead and buy backup flights on Flair coming here and Porter on the way back, just in case, because we need to get here and we need to get home. Okay, that's just one of hundreds, potentially thousands of people are impacted by this. WestJet has already canceled lots of flights, parking their, pl- parking their planes, and Man, it could get really hairy tomorrow. Let's discuss now with my guest, Duncan D. Duncan is a former executive with Air Canada. He's now an air travel analyst. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Duncan, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. I always appreciate your time. So let's talk about this situation here now. Like, What do you think is going on behind the scenes now, between now and tomorrow morning? Like, They say they're talking, right? Is that what's going on? Like, What are your sources telling you? Look, I'm probably one of the few Canadians that has been at the negotiating table in just before a pilot strike. I was at the negotiating table in 1998, uh, the last time this country saw a nationwide pilot strike. And so what's happening right now are the most intense periods of the negotiations so far. Uh, Basically, they're staring each other, the whites of their eyes, making sure that uh, they understand what their best and final offers are. Uh, And there's a tremendous amount of pressure that's being... uh, uh, put to bear on both management and the union, not just by each other and not just by WestJet customers, but by the presence of uh, officials from Labour Canada. And I understand that the federal minister of Labour is even on site now uh, trying to hammer out a deal between these two parties. So uh, it's extremely intense, lots of tension. And uh, my sources are telling me, though, that they are miles apart in terms of uh, where each side is on the wages. Okay, so is it if, wow, if they're that far apart, is a deal even possible right now? Look, anything is possible, and there's nothing that focuses the mind more than a, uh, a looming deadline. And uh, we're looking at a deadline of 2 a.m. Pacific time uh, overnight tonight. Uh, and so they've still got a little bit of time left to try to hammer out a deal. But the big problem here, Mike, is their understanding of the labor market is just so vastly different. You know, the pilots want to be compared to the way pilots are paid in the U.S. And WestJet management wants to compare pilots to what they're paid in the rest of the industry in Canada. And so when you've got such different starting points, it makes it extremely difficult to get them to where they need to go in time to avert a strike. Okay, how much jeopardy are we in here in terms of the traveling public? Like, if this strike does happen tomorrow, what will be the impact of that? How many people will be hit by this? Look, I mean, we're looking at a hit already. 
this morning when I woke up, the first thing I did was check how many WestJet flights were already canceled today before a strike has even happened. 105 flights were canceled as of 3.30 a.m. Pacific time this morning. Uh, that would, by my calculation, impact somewhere between 16,000 and 18,000 travelers today before a single uh, picket line has even been set up. And so if this goes ahead and we see a strike uh, starting tomorrow, WestJet carries about 60 to 66,000 travelers every single day, primarily in Western Canada. And so that will impact about, I would suggest, somewhere between 50 and 60,000 travelers every single day who won't be able to be wow. protected on other airlines. Man, this is this is huge. This is going to be a nightmare here if this happens. Speaking to Duncan D, former chief operating officer, Air Canada, as we buckle up here, get ready to see what happens. WestJet pilots, could they walk off the job tomorrow? One of the things that I find frustrating on this is for the public is trying to get a handle on the the wage demands here, like we're told that they're very far apart and there's all kinds of numbers flying around about how much money these guys make right now and how much they're looking for in terms of a raise. Let me play you a clip here because I I find this interesting. I spoke to a WestJet pilot on the show last week, Captain Jason Roberts. He's with the the, uh, pilot's union. And I just asked him straight up, like, how much money do you guys make? And listen to him kind of dance around it here. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. How much does a WestJet pilot make? Well, I mean, we can't, there's no point in getting into specifics, but, you know, what we're seeing is is we're falling behind the curve from uh, our competitors. And we just need to close that gap. Okay, well, I, I think the specifics are important, though. I just did a quick Google search here. It says a typical WestJet airline pilot airline pilot salary is just under 100000 a year. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, okay. that is accurate. But I mean, that's, you know, you have to take into account that it's, you know, it's, it, we required decades of, of training and experience to get to that pay rate. Okay, so he said a pilot with decades, decades of experience would make around 100000 bucks at WestJet. And then the company, though, there was a memo that was leaked to the Canadian press that talked about WestJet pilots being offered 300,000, 350,000, depending on the jet they're flying. Like Duncan, how much do these guys make? Do we know? Yeah, we do know. Um, The WestJet uh, collective agreement is actually posted on the Labour Canada website. Uh, So it's very transparent. And I don't know why uh, that pilot was uh, shy to say how much WestJet pilots make. So a starting WestJet first officer fresh into the company uh, based on the number of hours they work is probably looking at around uh, in the mid 60,000 a year range. Now that's the existing contract. Now what the uh, new proposed contract would take a WestJet captain, so we're not talking about somebody fresh out of, uh, fresh into WestJet, the, uh, a captain on a 737, which is a narrow body plane, which WestJet primarily operates, is looking at $300,000 a year uh, as, a, as a captain, which you know places them at the very top of the industry in Canada. And Mike, that's where we are really uh, getting into uh, trouble here, because you and I are talking about this in terms of Canadian pilots. 
Now, the WestJet Pilots Union wants to compare WestJet pilots to what American pilots are making. You know, just like a, a BC physician wanting to make what a Washington State physician makes. It's, it, 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 it would be nice for that physician, I'm sure. But it's just not realistic in terms of the fact that the labor market in Canada and the labor market in the U.S. are just so vastly different. If you go to a, any flight school uh, in Canada and you ask flight, uh, flight students what, where they aspire to work one day when they finish flight school and they get trained up, every single one of them will say either Air Canada or WestJet or both. And so WestJet is still the employer of choice for the vast majority of pilots starting out in the business. Uh, just like Air Canada is also the employer of choice for the vast majority of pilots starting out in the business. And so if we want to start talking about a continental approach to the labor market, then, you know, we need to do that not just for pilots. We need to do that for every single one. I'm sure that, <laughs> uh, Mike, you'd love to be paid the way a radio host is paid, you know, in the U.S. <laughs> and maybe even in U.S. dollars. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's some really interesting uh, context and background there, Duncan, for sure. So, uh, let's so let's talk about the situation in Canada. The WestJet pilots are they paid a competitive wage compared to Air Canada pilots? Like, do Air Canada pilots make about the same? Well, you know, a WestJet pilot right now would be uh, making slightly less than an Air Canada pilot, but what WestJet management has put on the table would put them well ahead of what an Air Canada pilot would be making for operating the similar type of aircraft. Now, yeah. Air Canada is about a year away from their own labor negotiations. So then it becomes Air Canada catching up to WestJet. You know, this is one of these um, dances where one side um, uh, starts uh, the dance and then the other guy joins in some sometime down the road. And so that's yeah. what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Okay. And the, the uh, CEO of WestJet has also argued that, look, you know, we're offering a competitive wage here on a national scale within Canada, okay, as you just outlined. You know, we can't start paying our people and using a comparator with American pilots. Like, how much do pilots make at American Airlines or Delta or some of these big U.S. airlines? The wet, the CEO of WestJet saying, that's not on, that's not fair. Is that a reasonable position for him to take as an executive over at that airline here to sort of hold the line on that? Like, no, we're not going to start using American pilots as a comparator here to pay you. Well, look, let me just uh, say this then. If uh, WestJet pilots would like to be paid the way foreign pilots are, why have they chosen the U.S.? I'd love to be able to pay them the way Mexican pilots are paid or Chinese pilots are paid or Australian pilots are paid. You know, it's great to pick and choose who you want to be compared to. But the labor market in Canada, it, you know, I, I, I pay um, the, the, the people that work for me in Canada the way other Canadians are paid. I certainly would never be able to afford to pay them what they are paid in the UK, in British pounds, or in Europe using euros, or the US using the, uh, using the US dollar. There are huge differences in the labor market. So it's nice to be able to say, oh, I want to be paid compared to the US when I then let's let's pick and choose what countries I'd like to I'd like to pay you like an Argentinian pilot or you know an African pilot I mean that's just not the way the 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 labor market works in any industry in Canada 
All right, we keep talking about the looming strike by WestJet pilots. My guest, Duncan D., former chief operating officer at Air Canada, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. John in New West. Hi, John, go ahead. Hi, I had a question for uh, Mr. D. Uh, I I don't understand why pilots can't compare themselves to American uh, carriers when... uh, he does himself, as well as uh, the CEO of WestJet, the CEO of Air Canada. Like, why why do the CEOs get to compare themselves to to whoever they want? But when it comes to pilots, the the people that are in the front of the airplane, the people that uh, the public trusts to get them safely from point A to point B, why that doesn't count? I, John, are you a pilot? I understand. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, you're. A, do you do you support these guys? Then do you think their their demands 100%. are? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Why do you support them? You think they're underpaid? I think they're they're underpaid. Absolutely. Yeah. Duncan, what do you say to him? I mean, it's just not true that uh, uh, I, when I was working at Air Canada, that I was pegged against what a uh, U.S. airline CEO was making. I, you know, my salary was actually published, as were the CEOs of airlines uh, right across uh, publicly traded airlines right across the U.S. And I was making much less than a U.S. Uh, uh, COO was making at the time. So I'm not really even sure where uh, that statement comes from. Uh, airline, other company CEOs in Canada aren't benchmarked against uh, CEOs uh, in, in the U.S. because the same argument that I just made would be made by board members uh, overseeing these companies and uh, determining the pay of these uh, executives. Uh, you know, be- uh, Executive pay in Canada is transparent. If you're a publicly traded company, uh, your pay is the top five uh, executive uh, members of that company, executive officers of that company have their salaries published. So it's not a secret what uh, these uh, CEOs are paid, as is the methodology of how these CEOs are paid. Um, And uh, the methodology is transparent as to what comparable companies they take into account in determining what those CEOs are paid. The companies okay. that that were determined for me were, were not American carriers. Let's go to Rob on the line in Surrey. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Yeah, hi there. I've got uh, just two things. You know, they're they're probably a little underpaid, but but and they should get a little raised. But in the same breath, when they're hired, they know the pay scale, so you know what you're getting into. So you, it's, it's like our BC teachers. You know, you want to be a teacher, but then you then once you get into it, you say, "Oh, it's a crappy job." Well, you know, at the end of the day, you know what you're getting into. So. Yeah, give them a little raise, but they're they're getting greedy. They're that's what you hired. That's what you came on board for. Okay, so okay. Is a little support, but not but not uh, not a big raise. Okay, thank you, Rob Duncan. What do you think of that? Look, I actually agree with John, who called earlier that pilots are underpaid, uh, and pilots should be getting a raise. And I believe that what they're what's on the table, and perhaps better than what's on the table, is possible. But you can't start looking at what, uh, picking and choosing which countries you want to compare yourself to and making your case to whoever you're negotiating with. That's my point. Victor in Coquitlam. Hi, Victor. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, I'm coming in from a safety point of view. It's my understanding that there's been over 300 pilots leave WestJet in the last year and a half. Number one, who the heck are they hiring to replace them? Rookies? And also, what's the, uh, you know, that from a safety point of view, Give them a raise so that they want to stay so we get the top-quality guys flying those planes. Duncan, what do you think of that? 
look, I, I don't think WestJet has lowered their hiring requirements to bring in pilots. There are minimum standards to be a commercial pilot in the country, and it's yeah. certainly not any lower at WestJet than it is at Air Canada or anywhere else, number one. And number two, I agree that safety is always the number one concern of any airline. And I can tell you this, that if there was ever a question of safety at WestJet, then you know the first people that would stop flying uh, WestJet would be uh, WestJet management. So I, I think okay. the safety card is not something you would play in the middle of a labor negotiation. We'll see what happens. Duncan, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. Let's talk about teen vaping in British Columbia now. New national data shows the number of Canadian teenagers regularly vaping and using e-cigarettes is among the highest in the world. This just released from Health Canada. Check out some of these numbers here. They surveyed teenagers from grades 7 to 12 and found that 29% had tried vaping they tried an an e-cigarette doesn't mean they're vaping every single day but they had tried it 29 percent other indicators also high across the board for teen vaping in canada some of the highest rates in the world i got maria papayawanu standing by to discuss first let's have a listen to the health minister here now british columbia has got high taxes on vape products they have strict regulations on vapes especially when it comes to kids vaping so a lot of kids getting their hands on vape products though let's have a listen to adrian dix here bc health minister vaping is not a good idea And this is the clear message we want to send today. We're taking specific actions in, I think, what is the most significant program of any jurisdiction in Canada. Yeah, so they brought in some, a lot of restrictions on regulations for licensing of of vape retailers, uh, caps on nicotine concentration in vape juice. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Maria Papayawanu, Rights for Vapors. Maria advocates for adult vape users, uh, especially for people who are trying to kick tobacco and transition to vape from tobacco. Very pleased to welcome Maria back to the show. Maria, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, Thanks so much, Mike. This is probably one of the hardest topics to discuss because myself personally and also through Rice for Vapors, we do not want kids to vape. We cannot stress that enough. What we do want is to find solutions that work. And when we look at those numbers, first and foremost, we need to show that the numbers have gone down. The percentages of youth that are using vaping products have gone down from the last survey. And they completely say, if you go directly to that site... It says they have decreased by 3%, by 4%, and we are seeing decreases happen. What we are seeing is in provinces that have full flavor bans, including Nova Scotia, PEI, New Brunswick, you're looking at access to vaping products, um, sorry, past 30-day use. The percentages are so much higher than a province like BC and Ontario, which have um, still allow flavors, but only in specialty retail shops. Oh, so wow. Okay, so that that's interesting. So you're saying that in provinces that have banned 
flavors in yeah. vapes. You're saying that more kids are vaping despite the flavor ban? Is it, Did well, I hear that right? Yeah. So when we broke down the numbers and I sat there and I looked at the numbers, and again, I am no um, professional statistician. I can't even say the word, so therefore I can't have that role. But when you looked at the past 30-day use and you broke down the provinces that were available, Nova Scotia has a full flavor ban, only allows tobacco, 23% um, past 30-day use. And you compare that to BC, past 30-day use, and BC still allows flavors in specialty vape shops, you're at 16%. And when you look at a province like Ontario and Alberta, they still allow vaping products in specialty vape shops. You're looking at 15.3% in Ontario and Alberta 14.8%. What I'm trying to say is, is that we need to all get together. The people who are massively against vaping and are using numbers to, you know, create uh, a fear and let's get together. Let's talk solution based and find yeah. regulations that are balanced and access. Let us work on enforcement. Let, like, I know that big bust in BC. Remember when we talked a little while ago? Yes. I think, yes. You know, they got products off the market. They got illegal products off the market and we need to do more of that. Yeah, there was a huge bust by police recently on Vancouver Island uh, near in around Greater Victoria where there was they busted a, a huge illegal vape ring that was they were marketing vape products to kids on sites like TikTok. They were they had a delivery network set up to mm-hmm. deliver illegal vape products to underage kids through social all arranged through social media. So yeah, that was a, a big big bust and you know the way I look at this, I got kids at home. Whenever I see young people using these vape products, I always think, oh, man, you, know, you almost want to go up and say, look, don't do it. You're so young. Do not start on this. Do not get hooked on this. Like you mentioned that you're an advocate for va- adult vapors and their rights. Uh, but, what, but talk to me a little bit about kids. Like, What are your concerns there about underage kids vaping? They're getting involved in something that was never created for them. No matter what we want to do, whatever way the CBC or any type of media wants to be portrayed, this product is a harm reduction product. And when we look at harm reduction products, they were never intended for use to start an addiction. They were always intended to to be used to help reduce the risk from addiction. This product was created by people who smoke for people who smoke. Not a big tobacco company, not a big pharma company. Yeah. And when the- I when I see kids who are getting access to vaping products, yeah. look, unlike you, I actually go up to them and say, "What are you doing?" Okay. <laughs> you know that this, you know, I do because I know the consequences. I deal I deal with the consequences every day. And I also know the consequences of what it's like to be chained to something, needing that nicotine. And I know, but if we're not having honest conversations, we are telling kids that you can get popcorn lung when there's never been a case. But if we sat there and told a kid, a teenager who, our teens are so intelligent, they have access to information that we have never had in past generations. And if we sat down and told them, here are some real consequences. You know what? You're going to have less money. 
you are going to miss out on opportunities because you're not going to be able to access your vaping. You're going to be stuck doing that. The other thing is this isn't so cool. Like Uh. we're looking at all the anti-vaping ads that are out there and they're always glorifying teenagers using these products and when you look at specialty vape shops and you look at vape shops we are not allowed to put a picture of a person using a vaping product for an ad so the only way that these kids are seeing ads of their peers vaping are through the anti-vaping ads so how about we just ban them from doing that why don't we put out real information that is consistent and concise with the rest of the world and with health canada because health canada has said Popcorn lung doesn't exist, and yet Fraser Health insists it can happen. Okay. Been talking about teen vaping, also using vape products to kick cigarettes. 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Maria Papayawanu is my guest. She is with the group Rights for Vapors. Nicole in Vancouver. Hi, Nicole. Go ahead. Hi, I'm just going to talk for a lot of parents here and tell you that there's way more kids than that playing with with vapes. It's out of control, and this conversation is about six years too late. They they flavor these things. Give me a break, like candy. It's just ridiculous, and I don't think that we're ever going to find a popcorn lung until somebody dies of it. So what are we just gonna wait ten more years? Honestly, do you have, I do you I don't have, even know if. Sorry. Do you have kids yourself? I do. Yeah, and are, what are what are you seeing like among their among your kids and their peers? Well, one of my daughter, my one of my kids is um, very anti-smoking, so she was also very anti-vape. But my son sort of got involved in it, and he. Um, when he quit, he just thought, oh, my God, what the hell was I thinking? Mm-hmm. And he feels so much better not doing it. But it's being used by children, like young kids, yeah. eight years old and up. This eight, is a really eight years serious old. problem. Eight yeah. years old? You've seen, you, yes. you've seen eight-year-old kids? Wow. Yep. And do you think it's because of the flavors, like the flavors are attractive to Absolutely. kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're just disgusting flavors, too. You can smell it. I mean, I've got a very sensitive nose, so I can really smell. It's like this toxic, fake mango flavor. You know, they do these fruity flavors that are just disgusting. Okay, Nicole, thank you for calling in. Um, So, Maria, okay, let's talk about the flavor issue. Yeah, Um, Nicole, I'm so sorry that your kids are getting access to vaping products. Um, I do think having honest conversations, using non-stigmatizing language, like removing words like disgusting and gross, um, and being having honest conversations with our kids, saying this is not designed for you. Um, The products that come in and access will always come in. If we find a way to have a proper regulated market, having proper enforcement, that then it won't be as easy to get these products from China and the United States brought in through our through our borders. And yeah. we're working on that continuously. And when we're talking about popcorn lung, there is an ingredient in um, 
that causes it. And the first and only cases of popcorn lung were in Minneapolis. And anyone can Google this. It was an Orville. What, what, is, can you, what is what is popcorn lung? Can you just define that? Like, what is it? Oh, God. You know what? It is so difficult for me to define. But what happens is that there are, they call it popcorn lung because it looks like your lungs are full of popcorn. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, it's it's oh, a sorry. It, it's a medical sorry, it's a medical condition, condition that, of the lungs that yeah. was the reason it's called popcorn lung because it only happened at a popcorn lump, uh, factory because of the butter and the inhalation of the butter um, uh, vapors that had diacetyl and all those people that did contract the majority of the people that did contract the popcorn lung also yeah. were smokers and that same chemical is found in cigarettes about 750 times higher than there has ever been in the history of vaping in a in a vaping product in Canada. And okay. also most of the e-liquid does not have that product in in the regulated market. Let me ask so this, you about let me ask you about the yeah. flavors just in the short yeah. time we have left here because I've I've heard from people who like the caller who pointed out that the flavors are can be targeted to kids. Like they're selling like tutti fruity flavors that you know, are, are marketed, are aimed at kids, okay. and that's a problem. But then I've also heard from people who are trying to quit smoking cigarettes or legitimately trying to quit tobacco that the flavors are helpful for them to transition to vaping. Yep. And so, we have both, and we have to find that balance. Like, first and foremost, the word tutti fruity on a vaping product in Canada is illegal. So if you see a vaping product with the name Tutti Fruity or Gummy Bears or anything yeah. like that, it is absolutely 100% illegal. And that is a smuggled in product or yeah. a non-regulated product in our country. So number one, if your kid is vaping a product like that, they're not getting a legal product. Yeah. So there, there is a bigger concern. Get that vape out of their hands. It's a non. We don't know how it was manufactured if it was done through proper standards. So. Oh. How big is the black market in, in, in the one minute we have left here? Because that bus that we talked earlier about in Greater Victoria, that was huge. I mean, they had a whole delivery network set up to deliver these products to kids. How big is that in Canada? Um, what we're looking right now is in a province like um, Quebec, where they are going after a full flavor ban. There are They are gearing up in the millions, if not it could end up being over a billion dollar industry and your kids are going to be targeted, not by me, who is a 50 year old woman who actually cares about your kid not having access to vaping products, but targeted by someone who's there to make some money to fund other illegal activities. So we need to all work together. We need to stop the stigmatization. We need to have honest conversations and we need to find solutions together because all we're doing right now is using kids as the, as the victims and putting, putting this product in the hands of people who do not care. Maria, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. I always appreciate it. Oh, I, I, you know what? I'm just going to say this. I love you, Mike Smythe. You are wonderful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Maria, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you for coming on. Maria Papayawanu, she is with the group Rights for Vapors. First, we start with news and health care in British Columbia, all the challenges, including 
the wait times for cancer treatment. Uh, the government this week making that surprising announcement to send patients, cancer patients, out of the province, out of the country, to send them to Bellingham, Washington, for treatment. i got Kevin Falcon standing by, leader of the opposition. Let's have a listen to the health minister here, Adrian Dix, and why they're doing this. Because with cancer and radiation treatment, we are not prepared to have people wait. That's why this, um, as, a, as we searched out this option, an opportunity, saw that it was available, we did not hesitate to offer this and are not hesitating to offer this to British Columbians. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United, leader of the official opposition in the legislature in Victoria. Kevin, thanks for coming on today. And thanks very much for having me, Mike. You bet. Thanks a lot for doing it. Okay, so let's talk about sending cancer patients out of the province, out of the country for treatment. I mean, this is the right thing to do, right? Well, of course it's the right thing to do. The tragedy is that we even have to do it. And, you know, I would just point out that the last time we were faced with this extraordinary situation where cancer patients had to be sent south to Bellingham was when the NDP were in power last time back in the 1990s, from 1991 to 1997. And this is just a common theme with uh, NDP mismanagement of the healthcare system typically results in extraordinary measures like this having to be taken. And I have to tell you, Mike, I mean, we cannot, we just cannot uh, bypass the irony here of this NDP government, which is constantly going on, uh, you know, about with the rhetoric about U.S.-style health care systems and anybody that wants to see any change or innovation in the system must want a terrible U.S. health care system. And then there they go, sending patients down to that terrible U.S. health care system to get the care they need because they can't deliver it here in B.C. Okay, let's talk about the waiting list here because I talked to a doctor about this situation on the show earlier this week, and he pointed out there there are multiple waiting lists. There's not just one waiting list. There's a waiting list for radiation if you have cancer. There's a waiting list to get diagnosed, to get diagnostic services for cancer. Those people are still still waiting. And I, I know that, didn't you, you guys found out some information about how, how long the waits are, right? Yes, we did. And uh, because what happened was after Adrian Dix made that announcement, uh, we very quickly uh, received some leaked information, uh, you know, from, uh, I don't want to say from who, but uh, of the actual cancer data. And uh, what it shows is that not only have we got the worst um, wait times in the country, uh, but it also shows that the numbers that, uh, D- that Adrian Dix was coming out with uh, turned out to be wrong. He was giving false information. Only 77 percent of BC patients are actually beginning their radiation therapy within the clinical benchmark, which is within four weeks. In Canada, it's 97 percent is the national average. In BC, it's 77. And he was trying to say it was 83 percent. And, you know, this is the kind of misinformation that is just so regular uh, under this government, where they put out information. We saw during COVID. We're seeing it now. We've seen it Uh, in other information on other files that we've uh, been taking the NDP on with. And for whatever reason, they just want to mislead the public about how, you know, what the true state of affairs is. And the reason why that's critical is data transparency is so important. I would argue it's important not just for the public to know what's happening, but it's important for government so that you can actually make decisions based on accurate data and hold yourself accountable for results. Isn't it true, though, that wait lists for these type of services have, have always been around? And, and by the way, 
sending patients, sending BC hospital patients out of the province, out of the country is also not unprecedented. You said it happened earlier on an NDP government. It happened under the previous, a previous liberal government too. I, I remember back in 2007, I know you were a cabinet minister at that time. Gordon Campbell was the premier. You were sending pregnant moms out of out of the province to Alberta and Washington State when they had high risk pregnancies because there was a shortage of. Whoa! Wait a minute. What do you mean that's wrong? No, no, no. That's correct. I I was going to say that's absolutely correct. There are there are cases, and sometimes we've had uh, uh, children with uh, significant brain issues that require very highly specialized care, and where we don't have that kind of care. Um, there has been, you know, rare cases, but it is quite rare. We're talking, Mike, let's just not, uh, you know, try, try to minimize this. There will always be cases where we have to send people south, but it's very, very rare and it's far and few between. But to send 20% of your radiation uh, patients south of the border is extraordinary. There's yeah. no other way about it. Right. And the other thing I just want to point out, Mike, and yeah. I just I go back to the hypocrisy here. Because we've never been one to say we would never do that. And we've never been one to say that it's even wrong to do that. Because I would always put patients first. And if we have to send them to a private clinic uh, down south, I would do it in a minute without even thinking about it. Because it's the right thing to do. But keep in mind that this is the group of people that constantly are decrying all the, you know, the dangers and evils of private health care. And I just can't help notice the hypocrisy of when they get into trouble, they're immediately sending patients down to private health care. And by the way, even in British Columbia, uh, he talks about how they're making progress on their surgical uh, wait list. A big part of, part of the reason is because they're sending those patients to private clinics here in B.C. too. You know, so well, I just get uh, a little bit tired of that hypocrisy, that's all. Yeah, are you suggesting that they should be more open to private health care? Like, are you more open to private health care options here in British Columbia? I have Look, I have always said that if I've got a patient that needs care, I am going to make sure they get that care. And if it's privately delivered and publicly funded, I don't have any problem with that at all. I care about getting the patient done. I'm just not being a hypocrite about it. They are doing exactly the same thing at the same time that they're pretending how horrified they are that anyone would ever think about private delivery. Uh, And yet they are right now, as we speak, people are getting publicly funded treatments at private clinics under the NDP government. So I just think at some point we have to stop with hypocrisy and start thinking about the interests of the patient. And what, what really bothers me in cancer care is just how far down we've gotten after two terms of NDP government. We used to be the best in the country. Nobody would argue that. A decade ago, 15 years ago, we were the very best in the country and we're seen as a, you know, the, the yardstick across North America of cancer care treatment. Now we're at the very bottom of the list under two terms of NDP government. And, you know, I think it's because they, they constantly make announcements, but they don't know how to do follow-through and they don't know how to yeah. hold people accountable for results, et cetera. And I, I just, I really worry about it. By the way, Mike, just quickly, they yeah. promised the Kamloops Cancer Center too, because we all think lower mainland here because of the lower mainland crisis. But up in Kamloops, they promised years ago a cancer center. They said it would be up and running by 2024. That's next year. But it's not even mentioned in their 10-year cancer plan. And, uh, you know, there's no chance they're going to make it happen. So I just think um, that we're failing the public, and it's very worrisome. Let me ask you about the situation at Surrey Memorial Hospital, where a group of emergency room physicians there, dozens of them, in fact, have been complaining about unsafe conditions at the facility. They describe it. The hospital is in a crisis. They released an open letter outlining their complaints. They started a website. 
to detail it, and they also complain that they've been pressured to shut up and not not speak publicly about this. Let's um, play a clip here for you. You'll hear Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke here, and then you will hear the Health Minister Adrian Dix. He's asked whether these doctors are under a gag order. Let's listen to what he says here. The docs are concerned about their patients. They're concerned about Surrey residents, and I want them to feel that they can speak up for their patients. They need to. That's their obligation. The health minister asked if there is a gag order in place on health care professionals. No. Untrue. No, they're not. And we're hearing from them, obviously, and that's, uh, that's part of the debate. Our health care workers are doing extraordinary things. We're sort of hearing from them anonymously. He denies they're being pressured to be quiet, but I've talked to doctors who said they ha- they have been pressured to, to not speak publicly. Your thoughts? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. He's just not telling the truth. I hear from doctors all the time, not just in the Lower Mainland, but up in Prince George and around the province. And there is no question. There's a lot of pressure not to to come forward and talk about just how serious the challenges are. Look, I was a health minister once in 2009, 2010. We did not have a perfect healthcare system then either. There's, I want to be clear about that. But never, ever did we see this extraordinary situation where you have doctors setting up websites, releasing uh, public letters like that. I have met with many of those doctors, and what they are telling me is deeply, deeply troubling. And we've got a government that spends most of its time, either uh, whenever they get into trouble or there's a big negative story like this breaking out, they just make announcements, and they'll announce, you know, more money for this or that. But the problem is they don't know how to manage things. They don't know how to deliver results. And, and I think the doctors are increasingly frustrated because patients are at risk. They told me flat out, patients have died because they're not getting the care they need when they need it. It is not uncommon for people to be waiting 18 hours at that Surrey Memorial Hospital emergency room to get into a bed. 18 hours. Right. And uh, it's, it's very, very, very worrisome. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. No problem, Mike, and thanks for raising this attention because I can tell you it's not just Surrey Memorial, it's Langley Memorial, there's hospitals across the province that are seeing the same thing, this mismanagement uh, by this government. We just, it's got to stop. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.